All right, thank you, Richie. While it is called the Apostles' Creed, since we are studying the Apostles this morning, it was not written by the Apostles, but it is in line with apostolic teaching and doctrine, I think is the idea. So I uh, just want to say thank you to uh, Richie and um, Rick and Miss Faye for putting together our new uh, and improved bulletin. I mean, we are <laughs> moving on up. Yeah, this is great. Um, so as fancy as we're getting, we have not departed from the word of God, okay? You know, we, we are committed, you know? <laughs> so we got a cool logo and everything. So, um, and actually, you know, while I'm on this, there is a section for sermon notes. So, I mean, if you want some bonus credit uh, with me, you know, not with the Lord, but uh, take some notes and um, hopefully I'll be clear enough to make that easy. Okay, well, if you uh, have your Bible, I hope you do, turn in it to... Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, we are kind of looking at part 2 on the apostles, and it's in verses 12 to 16. We looked at verses 12 and 13 last time, and we hope to look at verses 14 and 15, the actual 12 uh, this morning. So let me read the entirety of the text, though, starting in verse 12 down to verse 16, and follow along as I read. In these days, he went up out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of God. Well, when Gideon was choosing his men to go and fight, uh, God had him strategically Uh, whittled down the massive group of men to a small band. Uh, First, he started with all the men that Gideon had, and he said, this is way too many. So he basically told them, uh, anyone who is afraid, uh, just go home. You guys can just leave. And so a bunch of people (laughs) left, (laughs) and so they left. Then you have this uh, group left, and really what you have in this group is you have like the special forces guys who are like, they want to fight, and they know how to fight. And then you have those who are a little bit too ignorant to know what they're getting into because they're not afraid, but they're not quite sure what's going on. And so God has another test. It's like, we still have too many. So go down to the water and, and see who, how they drink, right? And basically it's a test to see like, do they drink strategically to keep aware of their surroundings, the special forces guys, or do they drink just kind of haphazardly and they're not really paying attention? And God goes, choose the guys who have no idea what's going on <laughs> and send home the special forces team. And those those are your men. And, you know, they're kind of like uh, the band kids in school. You know, it's like, don't give them a weapon. Give them an instrument, right? So they give them a trumpet, and they give them uh, a torch. And so they're to go in, and they're to blow this trumpet, and they're to break it, and they're to have, you know, a sword for Gideon and for the Lord. And they go in, and they defeat them. They decimate their enemies. Why? Because Yahweh fought for Israel. And that is the whole point, that God wanted the glory, not these men. And so what does the trumpet do? The trumpet announces Yahweh to the people. In fact, that's exactly what God had Joshua do when they marched around Jericho, seven days. You blow a trumpet uh, as you walk around the city, and why would that be significant? Well, because the Ark of the Covenant was central as they marched around, and it was those around the Ark who were blowing their trumpet to highlight for the people in Jericho, the significance of the ark, the significance of God and his presence uh, defeating their enemies as they go through the land. And so here again, they blow the trumpets to highlight God's power and they win. And God loves to work that way, where he takes the weakness, the ordinariness of man and uses it to highlight his strength, his power, his glory. 
And that's really what we see in Jesus' choice of these 12 men. They are nothing special. They are no one of high rank in Israel uh, religiously. They haven't really been to school. In fact, they are known for being uneducated men. And yet, these are the men Jesus chooses. These are those whom he will form into the men who will shake this world. People Magazine often has a, you know, uh, people of the year, and um, I just look for fun at like 2022 and who they were, and like three of them, I didn't even know who they were. They were all actors, I think, and <laughs> so I was like, okay, uh, not helpful, but, but, um, but you think, who are some of the most significant people who've ever lived in, as far as impact and, and God's plans and God's eyes, and these 12 are massively significant in the impact that they have had, and yet they're ordinary. They're ordinary men, who are they? Well, these 12 are so fascinating. I've been so challenged in studying their lives again. I remember uh, years ago, I think it was in high school, and I got the book 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, where he basically spends the whole book looking at the 12, and each chapter is on one of them. Some of them get bunched into a chapter, but it's a great book. I would encourage you to read it for a more uh, deep dive. Um, I'm going to be merciful, you know, I show mercy to who I'll be merciful to, you know, and we're only going to do, we're going to cover all of these guys this morning. I originally intended to do it in one, um, but oh, too ambitious, and, uh, and so we just covered the first three points of our four-point thing, and so we're going to, we looked last time at the dependence in prayer for the apostles, Jesus prays, the draft of the apostles, the distinctiveness of the apostles, and then we left for this morning the description of the apostles. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, these men's lives. But I would encourage you, check that out. Um, You could easily do a 10-part series on these men and just kind of look through the scriptures and what they say and the lessons. We're going to get a little bit of that. We're going to get like apostles light. You know, we're going to look at some of the lessons to learn from their lives uh, as we uh, kind of see more of them throughout the gospels. Um, But we want to expose ourselves a little bit to Uh, their lives and how God worked in them. But it is so encouraging to see so many things that how patient God is with the people he chooses and works on and how long it takes us to get certain things that God wants to communicate to us. There are really four lists of the apostles where you get them all and so you're able to see some similarities in how the lists are structured and there is a structure in each of them there is some difference among them, but nothing, not like, you know, one guy's not there, but the, 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 some of the ordering, but there are commonalities. For instance, there are four sets of three, and Peter leads the list of the apostles in every case. Peter is always first, and Judas Iscariot is always last. And he's uh, often indicated that he was the traitor or the betrayer. Also, for... Most instances, uh, each per- the same person begins each of the four lists. And this indicates as well that there were, some of these men were closer to Jesus than others. And, and this is just makes sense. Uh, Jesus was a man uh, and spatially located. And so though massive crowds were coming to him, th- there was a group of, uh, of disciples that follow Jesus. There's the 70, if you will, that we see later that go out and minister, and probably a group even larger than that. So you have like the large group, then the 70, and then you have the 12, and they have the closest relationship with Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then even among the 12, there seems to be, as you read all the passages, uh, an inner circle. You have the three, the the top three who are listed, uh, Peter, James, and John, and they get to do some unique things with Jesus that others don't get to participate in. And so you see this kind of narrowing down. And so it seems like the list indicates some of that and the closeness they had with Jesus. Um, Some of these men we know a lot about, like Peter, James, and John, or especially Peter and John. Uh, Others we we know very little about. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) These men like shape the world of which we live in uh, some of them, we, we only know their names and some uh, traditions of the church about where they ministered and how they died. Some of these men are related. Um, some of them are brothers. Uh, others are not. Um, 
Some of them have similar professions. Others, very different. Some would have been friends. Some were friends already before Jesus called them. Others would have never been friends otherwise. And this is a great lesson as well about how the gospel takes people who would never have a relationship with each other and makes them have the closest relationship that they could possibly have because of their unity in the truth and their union in Christ. You know, and so we see that. Most of these men have a nickname. Uh, You've got to love these guys. And um, they, they each have a call sign, if you will. And uh, I would love to have like a baseball cards of each of the 12 apostles. And then on the back, you'd have like their stats, you know, just them, like where they're from, you know, what their nickname is, you know, uh, what, what books of the Bible they wrote and different things like that. I mean, that would be helpful to like learn them. Um, it's like Bible trivia, like who are the 12 tribes of Israel? Who are the 12 apostles? And some of them have their nicknames. And so you got to remember that. But uh, these are the 12. These are the 12. Well, let me just remind you briefly what we covered last time. We looked at Jesus' prayer all night, an all-nighter in prayer, his dependence before he chooses these men. And Jesus' continual commitment to prayer in the Gospels is uh, convicting and encouraging that he prays for his people. Then the draft of the apostles, when he calls out the larger crowd of disciples and then chooses 12 out of them. So they had already been with Jesus, and now he selects these 12 for a particular role. And then we saw the distinctiveness of the apostles in the beginning of, or the end of verse 13. And we saw that this word apostle is, yes, it's used in a generic way of a messenger, but more commonly, it's used in the sense of these specific office and gifting of apostle that was unique to this time in history. It is not a repeatable gift or office. There are no more apostles today. Once these apostles died, they, uh, once Judas died, they replaced him. And then after that, they didn't replace anymore after James dies in um, Acts chapter 12. Paul is an addition as well, one untimely born, but he says of himself, he was the last one, the last of the apostles. So that's what we saw last time. Now we look at the description of the apostles uh, as we get them in verses 14 and uh, 14, 15, and 16. So it's time to meet these men. We don't quite have a 12-point sermon, but we're close to it. <laughs> so just hang on your seats. Uh, we've got to mix some of them together uh, just because we don't know as much. So let's look at the description of the apostles. And for each of them, I kind of have an application question, a, a lesson to learn from their lives. So we're going to start with Peter, Simon Peter. Simon, whom he named Peter. And here's the question for Simon Peter. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? He is referred to at times as Simon Peter. Uh, Simon, when he's bad. <laughs> uh, Peter. Uh, Simeon, actually in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter writes his name Simeon, not Simon. And so people are like, why is that? Some think actually that it's a mark. So, so, so critics of the Bible go, oh, Peter didn't write Second Peter. But actually, Simeon may be an indication that absolutely he wrote it because it's probably the case that his name actually was Simeon, but they called him Simon. Uh, and so uh, he, it's like a mark of genuineness as he writes that. So ESV actually does put Simeon in there and there's a little footnote. So it's not a different guy. Simeon, also his name is sometimes called Cephas. Um, so you'll see that come up in John 1.42. He is the son of John. Uh, and it says, even in our passage, that uh, Simon, whom he, that's Jesus, named Peter. So Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock or, or stone. So Peter's nickname is Rocky, right? That's what they called him. Uh, and wh where, where do we see that? Well, we're, we'll get there in a minute. But he renames him, and there's kind of this play on words. Um, Jesus, uh, Peter makes this incredible confession of faith in Christ, and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, mostly meaning, probably meaning the confession that he made, on this rock bed, you're a little rock, but on this rock bed, I'm going to build my church the based on the confession of faith in Christ. So his name is Rocky, Peter. He was also a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, his family moved there to the town of Capernaum, and he worked from there. His brother is Andrew, and in this list, Andrew's listed second to kind of connect them together. And it's his brother, Andrew, who introduced him to Jesus. So if you go to John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, 
John 1, 42. We'll start in verse 40 because this is like day four of Jesus' first uh, day of public ministry. 140, John 140. One of the two who heard John speak, that's John the Baptist, heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so he's, he's given this name, uh, Cephas, or it's a translation of the word Peter. So his brother introduces him to Jesus. Uh, and yet, though Andrew was the first to find Jesus, Peter is going to have a more prominent role. Uh, we, have, we know less about Andrew. Peter is the main spokesman for the apostles. Uh, Peter and Andrew are brothers. They're fishermen. Uh, James and John, we'll see, are also brothers and also fishermen. So you have two brothers who are both fishermen. Peter is always listed first. He talks the most of all the apostles. He is known by some as having the foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> because he's constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Um, he's quick to speak, but he's often um, uh, saying things before, he's, he's speaking before he thinks sometimes. Uh, so go to Matthew chapter 16. Sometimes he says things really incredible and profound. He gets it. But then like shortly thereafter, he says some really foolish things. So here's an example. In Matthew chapter 16, there at Caesarea Philippi. And in Matthew 16, 13, we read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And this is like massive question, very significant. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? I mean, what, what, who is he really? And they said, so this is the, the apostles are kind of chiming in, they're all together. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Je- Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, what a statement. Verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you got it right, but it's because the Holy Spirit revealed this truth to you. He put it together so you would get it. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, so you're like a little rock, and on this rock bed, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whoever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in hev- heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, uh, Peter is, um, recogn- recognizes who Jesus is because of the Holy Spirit. But then notice the next thing that happens. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he begins to make this prominent to them, emphasizing this over and over again. And here's how Peter responds, verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. So, (laughs) one of the greatest confessions. Peter, you got this right because the Holy Spirit helped you. What does Peter look like when the Holy Spirit is not, you know, uh, I mean, of course he was at work in Peter's life, but, but here he's now called Satan. You're acting like Satan, Peter. So Peter, quick to speak, sometimes 
really profound. Other times, close to Satan. <laughs> he's the leader of the apostles, as we see, but he's not the first pope, uh, according to the heir of the Catholic Church. After all, he was married. We already saw his mother-in-law. If you have a mother-in-law, you have a wife. <laughs> so Luke 4, 38. Um, uh, Peter is um, the leader, the main spokesman of the apostles. Uh, Peter also preached one of the greatest sermons on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So though he's like kind of bumbling around sometimes, when, after the resurrection and all this clarity comes to them as the pieces start to fit into place, as they understand the scriptures it, by their authorial intent and they, they see it and they see what Jesus has done and it becomes so clear, he then preaches this lights out sermon. 3,000 people respond in faith as he preaches about Christ and him crucified and connects the dots for the Jews and people there from the Old Testament. An incredible sermon. He is known as the apostle to the Jews. You know, Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, uh, the apostle to the Jews. In fact, you could outline the book of Acts by the ministry of Peter and then the ministry of Paul. I mean, that's really how the book, you know, breaks down in, in one sense. Massively important. What's the main lesson, though, from Peter's life that we want to take away? I mean, we could just go through every passage and look at him, but we can't. So what do we want to take away? Well, Peter loved the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, it says this, Luke twenty-two thirty-one: 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is, in essence, predicting Peter's going to blow it. Uh, Satan has demanded to have him, but, but Jesus is praying to sustain him, to sustain his faith through it all. And he, and he just gives him the assurance, though Peter may not have ears to hear it yet, he says, when you have turned, so there's a, there's a guarantee, you will turn back to me, and when you do, strengthen your brothers. Okay, remember that. Verse 33, here's how Peter responds. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And so he predicts this denial, of threefold denial of Peter. Then we read in verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat, together, sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I did not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you, are the one, you, are one, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Actually, one of the other gospel writers says he cursed, like to add emphasis and immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, you imagine, they're, they're in a courtyard that they could see each other from a distance. And it's like, just imagine that, the scene as Peter finally curses the third time and denies the Lord to save his skin. And just like from a distance, it just so happens that Jesus looks in his direction, that piercing gaze, and Peter catches his eye. And the amazing, incredible guilt and uh, sorrow that came into his heart, and he, he, he leaves at that point. The Lord dies. He's raised. At this point, Peter and Judas look indistinguishable. Judas has denied the Lord. Peter's denied the Lord. What's the difference? Is there any difference? Well, Judas is sorrowful as well, yet he kills himself. He hangs himself on a tree. 
that Peter repents and he'll return to the Lord. And so go to John chapter 21. John 21. And we see his restoration just like Jesus said, because Jesus prayed for him. In John 21, so Jesus appears to the disciples in a similar way to how he appeared at the first when Peter was fishing and he appears and they're fishing again. They haven't caught anything. Uh, they've been fishing all night and it's like the same thing. It's a repeat. And so Jesus now stands on the shore and yells out to them and Peter realizes it as they have this great catch of fish and he jumps in the water, swims to shore. He knows it's, it's the Lord. The Lord's appeared to them a number of times, and now he restores Peter. And he has this kind of like side conversation with Peter. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Maybe the disciples that he's talking about. You know, he, he was saying, I, though everyone deserts you, though the rest of these guys, they're going to leave, I'm going to be with you. I'll, I'll die with you. He says, you're going to deny me three times. So I think he might be saying, do you love me more than these, these disciples? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Remember that? Strengthen the disciples after you've turned again. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Just like he did at the beginning when he met him the first time, or met, when he called him as a disciple, rather, follow me. Now, I don't think some make a big deal about the different words for love in Greek here. Uh, I think actually John's just using synonyms. I think the big point is that he said it three times because Peter denied him three times. That's the big takeaway. It's to say, it's like driving it home for Peter. You denied me three times. I'm gonna ask you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And of course, Peter just goes, Lord, you know all things. You're omniscient. You know, Lord, you search my heart. And so he restores him here. And Peter was a man marked by love for Jesus. Listen to what he says in his first letter, 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. Verse eight, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's saying, I got to see him. Oh, he's so glorious. I love him. And you love him, believers who have not seen him in the flesh. He writes Second Peter because he loves truth so much and he attacks false teachers when false doctrine comes into the church, he has a holy hatred for it because he realizes it, false teaching, false doctrine leads people away from true love for Christ. And so he'll write to rebuke them and encourage them then to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died according to tradition by crucifixion, upside down, uh, and his wife dies along with him. So here's the big lesson. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love Christ like Peter? Have you been brought to faith and then you've seen the Lord Jesus? You, you know more of him, which means you then grow in your love for him. J.C. Rowell has a great little statement in one of his writings that stuck with me where he says, you know, you know that you love Jesus if you love to think about him, if you love to talk about him, if you love to be with his people, if you love to share him with others, if you love to read about him, if you love to pray to him, this is how you know in part that you love Christ because your life is all about him or you long for it to be that way. So do you love Jesus, the life of Simon Peter? Andrew, Andrew, do you bring others to Jesus? Do you bring others to Jesus? It says he called Andrew his brother. So Andrew is the brother of Peter. He's less prominent than his brother Peter. 
He's second in Luke's list, but he's often listed in the second set of three apostles. Usually it's uh, Peter, James, and John, but here he's listed second. They were originally from Bethsaida, the house of fishing, and they moved at some point and relocated to Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's an early follower of Jesus, as we pointed out, uh, but he's most known for bringing people to Jesus. So we just saw in John 1, and we just read that passage, he, he hears of Jesus, he makes the connection that this is the Messiah uh, from John the Baptist ministry, and so he brings his brother, he brings others, he's bringing people to Jesus. You gotta hear this guy, we found him, we found the Messiah. But he's also doing this in other instances, in John chapter six. In John chapter six, verse eight, this is the feeding of the 5,000, uh, and it says in verse eight, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? And then Jesus instructs them to make the people sit down. So, so here's Peter, they're, they're going, well, Lord, how are we going to feed all these people? And Peter goes, hey, I found this kid. He's got some food. And uh, how about I bring him to you? You can do something with that. So here's Peter. He's like, got this mindset of like, if I can just get him to Jesus, that's all I need to do. So he's got his brother. He's like, hey, you just got to meet this guy. It's incredible. You've, you've got you to listen to this sermon, brother. You got to read this book. You got to, oh my goodness, this Christ changed my life. I mean, you got to see this. And then he's got this boy. He's like, well, I don't really know how this is going to work out, but let me just take you to Jesus. You know, that's what he does again. And then he does it again in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Verse 20. This is getting close to the upper room, very close to the, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, we'll meet him in a little bit, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks, they're like, hey, wait, can you get us? You know, you're an apostle. Can you get us uh, some time with him? Philip went and told Andrew. <laughs> so Philip's like, uh, what do we do here? Let's go to Andrew. He'll know what to do. So he goes to Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And so he's like, what do we do? These guys want to see Jesus. And Andrew's like, well, let's take them to Jesus. You know, that's, that's how we do things. You know, get them there. And, and that's what we'll do. So they want to see Jesus. Let's bring them to Jesus. So that's what happens. I'm massively encouraged by the life of Andrew and convicted I mean, I need to share the gospel more with people. I need to get uh, people to Jesus, you know? And you could do that in a number of ways. Sometimes you get an opportunity. It comes and goes quickly, so you gotta be ready. You know, someone says something, and you can jump on it and be like, hey, what about this? You know, do you know, uh, what do you think about God? What do you think about Christ? And, and give them the gospel. Other times, you you're have a more long-term relationship. Maybe say, hey, uh, this message really helped me. You should listen to this. Or, hey, do you want to read uh, a gospel together? Or do you want to uh, read a book together? Or, hey, you should check out this book. Or whatever it might be. Invite them to church. Whatever it is, getting people to Jesus, getting people to the truth about Christ by any means possible. That's what Peter, that's what Andrew, excuse me, was about. Boldness in bringing people to Christ. Uh, concerning his death, Eusebius tells us that Andrew took the gospel north beyond the Black Sea. Um, Russia and Scotland both claim Andrew. Uh, the Scottish flag has St. Andrew's cross on it because tradition says that Andrew was crucified on a cross turned sideways, so it looks like an X. And so um, St. Andrew's uh, famous golf course in Scotland. And so uh, he is there patron saint, I guess. Uh, he died in Achaia, as tradition says, in southern Greece. Uh, as tradition says, that he led a wife of an influential Roman governor to Christ. And her husband told her to recant. No, you can't believe in Jesus. <laughs> and she refused. And so he went and crucified Andrew for leading her to Christ. While he's on the cross, though, he preached to others as they pass by, telling them about Christ. Even as tradition has it, as he's on the cross, he's still bringing people to Jesus, telling people, you need to know Christ. Do you know Christ? 
And so he brought others to Jesus. And we need to do the same. So, do you bring others to Jesus? James, James, here's the question for James. Will you suffer for Jesus? Will you suffer for Jesus? We have the words, and James. (laughs) Well, after one pair of brothers are introduced, here's another pair, James and John. And the challenge with James, even later tradition mixes them up because there's a number of Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. So which one are we talking about? Well, this is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the fishermen. Uh, There's another James named James, the son of Alphaeus, who's also one of the apostles. He is uh, James the Less, as they call him. Uh, We call him Shorty. Um, James, uh, there's another James, James, the father of the apostle Judas. And then there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, And he, this James, not the one we're talking about now, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, he writes the epistle of James. So the James we're talking about is not the James who wrote the epistle of James. That is the half-brother of Jesus. And that guy became like the prominent pastor, leader of the Jerusalem church. Because in Acts chapter 15, they're deferring to James. And James makes a a decision for them. And so that's another story in and of of its own. So, James here is the brother of John, and they were both called by Jesus while they were fishing with their father, Zebedee, in his fishing business. And James and John are also Jesus' cousins. Uh, Their mother, Salome, is Mary's sister. And so they are somewhat related uh, to Jesus. James and uh, John have the nickname Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, sons of thunder, Uh, They were likely brash men. But here's the lesson we want to learn from James, that he was the first of the apostles to be martyred, to give his life for Christ. If you go to Acts chapter 12, we read about this. In fact, he's the only one who's listed in the New Testament as uh, having been killed. The rest of the apostles we get really from tradition of what what happened uh, in their deaths. But here... He dies quite early in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so he is the first to be martyred, the first apostle to be killed. And after this, Peter was arrested too. And then what happens is Peter is actually sprung loose uh, and he goes to the house and they're like praying, having the prayer meeting for Peter. And he, he shows up and they're like, uh, oh, Peter's here. And they leave him at the door and stuff like that. But, but James here in God's providence, he saw fit to have James die, but Peter not to die yet. He's an example of suffering for Jesus. Uh, some tradition says that he, uh, a false witness spoke against James and that he was killed then for his faith. But then as he's being led away to be killed, he is preaching and the person who betrayed him is converted, as tradition says. So even in that, he is preaching. Um, this reminds us of the words of Jesus, no doubt, precious to James. Matthew 5 Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So James is an example of suffering for Christ. The lesson that James is, suffers well. So will you suffer for Christ? the life of James. Then we look at John, John, his brother. John might be my favorite apostle uh, if I had to choose one. And here's the, here's the lesson, many lessons with all these guys. So we're just pinpointing one thing to pull out. And here's the lesson from James. Have you been humbled by Jesus? Have you been humbled by Jesus? Uh, John sometimes is portrayed in pieces of art, uh, like Da Vinci's uh, Last Supper uh, as like this, you know, like effeminate kind of guy. He almost looks like a girl in The Last Supper. Uh, and sometimes he's kind of looked skinny and sickly, but far from what John most likely would have been like, he was a strong fisherman, gruff and rough. 
And like we said, James and John are Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. It sounds like a biker gang, you know. <laughs> uh, and why would you give them such a nickname, sons of thunder? Well, here's one reason. Uh, Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, that like, may sound kind of random to you, but that's actually uh, almost certainly a reference to 2 Kings 1, when uh, the, the, the wicked king is sending servants to, uh, soldiers to Elijah, and um, and so there's unbelief in Israel during this time, and they send these servants to capture Elijah, the prophet, and 50 come, uh, and fire comes down and consumes the 50. And so the, the king sends another 50, and, the, and then fire comes down and consumes those 50. And then there's like another group of, of soldiers that come, and this guy's a little smarter, and so he begs for mercy, and he's like, I know what happened to the other 100, and he's like, please be merciful. And, and so that guy is spared, but they know about this story, and so they're like, hey, these people are rejecting you, like, like that was happening in 2 Kings 1. Do you want us to have that happen? I mean, that's what happened before. And so they, they were... They were ready to go, you know, calling the strike. You know, it's like, these are the guys I think you would want to have you in a dark alley, James and John. You'd bring them. I think of them as like Schwarzenegger and Stallone if you were to cast them in a movie. And it's like, uh, these are like, you know, I, that's how I picture them, uh, these muscular guys. Uh, but they're kind of mama's boys too because they have, they have their mom submit an application for them to have the two greatest positions in the kingdom. Mom okay, we know that we're cousins, and so maybe you have an in with Jesus. Uh, can you kind of work your magic? And so if we had time, we could read that. You could read it in Mark 10, 35 to 38, and let us have the, you know, give us whatever we want. Do what, do for, will you do for us whatever we ask? I mean, there is some faith built in there that they, they really believe Jesus has this authority. They do believe he's going to reign as king. They do believe these things, but their priorities are a little off, and, and they want to have the preeminent place. They want to be first and second. You know, maybe they're arguing with each other. Who's going to be what? And so they want these prominent places in the kingdom. They're already in the inner circle of Jesus. They had the most time with Jesus and so they're privileged to have certain conversations with Jesus, to be at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. But John, John was rough around the edges as he began. All these men uh, had to go through a process of sanctification just like we do. Uh, yet John, God was at work in John. I think we could entitle the life of John as from pride to humility. From pride to humility. He humbled this man and made him so tender and loving. Now, one preacher made this great comment, and I was just like, yeah, that is so good, just about the humility of John. Uh, John is the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And interestingly enough, in the Gospel of John, John does not mention himself by name once. Now, you'll see the word John, but it's actually referring to John the Baptist. So John never refers to himself. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple, but he never actually calls himself John. In 1 John, he never mentions himself by name. In 2 John and, um, and 3 John, he just refers to himself as the elder. The elder. I'm just an elder, like you guys. I want to encourage you guys. But not by name. And then, in the book of Revelation, he only refers to himself four times and the way he refers to himself is significant. In Revelation 1.1, he refers to himself as one of Jesus' slaves. I'm a slave of Christ, a bondservant. I'm just a slave. One is generic, where he just says his name, I, John. One is in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says, I'm your fellow brother and partner. I'm just with you guys in this. I'm just a fellow brother in Christ, a partner with all of you. I mean, he's an apostle. He's the inner circle. But the last time he refers to himself by name is in Revelation 
22, the very end, Revelation 22, verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I'm an elder, fellow elder. I'm a slave. I'm just a partner, a brother, and I'm a blasphemer. The angel appeared, and I was tempted to worship this angel. John writes in 1 John 5.21, this is the last verse of 1 John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. John is saying, I didn't listen to my own advice. I blaspheme. I worship this angel. And he signs off. How humble this man to go from, give me the first or second position in the kingdom to, I'm just like you guys. I still struggle. I was tempted to worship this angel. And he told me to worship God. Of course I know that. I wrote that. And so here's how God works on a person and humbles them. John is maybe the only disciple who did not die uh, by martyrdom. John was exiled to the island of Patmos in the 90s, 90s AD, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But according to tradition, John lived the longest into the 90s and early 100s, according to some, and he spent the last decades of his life in Ephesus. And so here we see the life of John as one of from pride to humility. Have you been humbled by Jesus? We look at Philip now. Philip, do you long to see Jesus? Do you long to see Jesus? Philip, he's an early disciple. We saw him in John 1, along with Andrew and Peter. He appears elsewhere in the Gospels, uh, not knowing what to do, like <laughs> uh, when the feeding of the 5,000 and when the Greeks come, and he just goes to get Andrew. And yet, uh, we shouldn't confuse him with the Philip in Acts 6-5 that was chosen there. But here's the big takeaway from Philip. In John chapter 14, in John chapter 14, we read this. And Jesus gives them this promise that he's going to go away. He's going to prepare a place for them. Then he's going to co- go and, and take them to receive them to himself, that where he is there, he may be also Thomas asks a question, which, where's the way? And Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and life. And then, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Now, yes, he's being rebuked here in part, but he wants to see God. He wants more of God. This is like Moses, who Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. In Exodus 33, oh, I want to see it. And, and he just kind of puts him in the cleft of the rock and lets just the glory pass by. Uh, and, and he gets a, a portion of that. He wants to, to see God. So he has this longing. Do you long to see God, to know him? According to tradition, one writer says that by most accounts, he was put to death by stoning at uh, Heliopolis in Phrygia, in Asia Minor, uh, eight years after the martyrdom of James. And before his death, though, multitudes would come to Christ through his preaching. So this is the life of Philip. Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Here we'll ask the question, do you recognize the Messiah? Do you recognize the Messiah? It's likely, uh, almost certain, that Bartholomew is also Nathaniel. That's his other name, or, you know, maybe Bartholomew is the nickname, and Nathaniel is his main name. Um, he's actually in John 1. Um, if you were in Sunday school, you know all about him. We talked about him a little bit, but so um, I'll just make mention here. In verse 45 of John 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And so Nathanael, Bartholomew, he is looking for the Messiah and when he finds him, when he sees him and when he perceives that he has this supernatural knowledge about Nathanael, he realizes this is the Messiah we've been waiting for, the one whom Moses and the prophets spoke about. He was looking for the Messiah and he recognized him when he came. Do you recognize the Messiah? Do you see how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pointed forward to? According to one writer, early church records suggest that he ministered in Persia and India and took the gospel as far as Armenia. There's no uh, certain record about how he died, but one tradition says that he was tied up in a sack and cast into the sea. Other traditions say that he was crucified, but he was most certainly martyred for his faith, regardless of how it happened. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, do you recognize the Messiah? Matthew, also known as Levi, asked the question, is Jesus valuable to you? We've actually looked at uh, Matthew in our account already as Jesus called him, so we won't spend too much time here, but he was the tax collector, uh, a despised sinner in Israel, and yet exactly the kind of person Jesus came to save, to seek and to save those who were lost. Matthew teaches us about the mercy of God towards sinners he, Matthew frequently refers to himself as the tax collector uh, just to show what God saved him from. He teaches us the cost of discipleship as well. Humanly speaking, he probably gave up the most materially to follow Christ for he had this tax uh, business where he likely made lots of money and he gives it all up and follows Christ, and he does so because he saw the worth of Christ, he saw the value of Christ, and so he, he writes in his gospel, maybe even thinking about himself, as Jesus recounts one of these parables in Matthew thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Matthew came to realize Jesus was totally worth it to leave all to follow him, to have Christ, to do whatever it took to have Christ. And so he saw the value of Christ to you. Tradition says he ministered to the Jews both in Israel and abroad and that he also was martyred for his faith. Some traditions say that he was burned at the stake. Then we come to Thomas. The question here is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Thomas is also known as Didymus, which is a word for the twin. So maybe he had a twin brother. We don't know for sure, but he's called the twin. Um, we often speak about him as doubting Thomas, right? Because he wasn't there when the rest of the, Jesus first appeared to the rest of the disciples and the apostles. And so he just wasn't there. And so they're like, whoa, Jesus is alive. And he says, you know, I want to, I want to see it for myself. I want to put my finger into the wounds. And, uh, and then later the next Sabbath, he comes again, Jesus does, and, and Thomas is there and is able to see him. So we dog on him for that. But, but actually I think he probably represents what all of the disciples would have said if they weren't there and someone told them <laughs> that Jesus uh, had risen from the dead. It's just that he's the only one that wasn't there and voiced his opinion. Because what we get from Thomas, let's redeem him a little bit, is maybe one of the clearest statements about the divinity of Christ anywhere in Scripture. When he does see Christ, when he does see the risen Christ, in John 20, verse 24, we read this. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, 
was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The lesson of Thomas, do you believe in Jesus? Thomas does. And John's gospel is bracketed with two statements, explicit statements that Jesus is God, a very God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. This is John's way of saying, this is the culmination. This is it. This is the conclusion you have to come to about Jesus. He is truly God and truly man. And who says it? Whose lips does he allow to speak this truth? Thomas. Thomas gets to say it in John's gospel. And Jesus commends him for that. And then those who will continue to believe in Christ after that. So do you believe that Jesus is truly God? I mean, this changes everything. I mean, think about, why would these guys go to their death? Because many reasons, but he really is God. He really has risen from the dead. And so they go and it is totally worth it for them. His lesson is one of faith. With Lazarus, that story with Lazarus, and, and they're gonna go, and, and the people are against Jesus and fearful of, uh, of, of dying. And so Thomas goes, let's go with him so that we might die also with him. <laughs> He's just like, we're ready. I'm ready to go with him. He, he has this sense of commitment to Jesus no matter what. As far as his death is concerned, um, he, he uh, let's see here. He, he says he went to, tradition says he went to India and he was martyred there uh, by being thrust through with a spear. But when you're convinced that Jesus is God and he is for you, you will gladly go to your death with confidence. And for the next point, we're gonna collect James, Simon, and Judas together, the good Judas, and, uh, and, and ask the question, do you look to the reward? Do you look to the reward? We don't know as much about these three, but we can still uh, make some comments about them. James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, we already looked at the other apostle named James, the brother of John, who was martyred. This James is also not the James who wrote the letter of James. Uh, little is known about this James. He is the son of Alphaeus. He's known as James the Less. And it could be that he's younger, but probably more likely that he was shorter. <laughs> so they would call him Shorty. Uh, you know, you have a short friend, and, you know, maybe you make comments about that, or a tall friend, you make comments about that. So he's Shorty, James Shorty. Uh, some say he ministered in Syria and Persia. Uh, some sources say he was murder, martyred in Egypt uh, by crucifixion. Others say he was stoned to death, and still others say that he was beaten to death. Uh, so I think the common denominator is he was killed for his faith, regardless of how it happened. Simon, who was called the zealot, um, it's possible but unlikely that the zealot idea uh, means that he was like passionate for the law. It's probably the idea that he was a part of a group that was a terrorist organization in Israel during this time. They were called zealots because they would try and knife Romans, uh, Roman soldiers, Roman uh, politicians uh, in secret. So a big crowd and they would have this like Sakari uh, sword, this knife dagger, and they would come up behind a Roman and they would knife them and then walk away and, and just leave. Uh, they were like assassins. They were terrorists. Uh, they wanted to upset Rome. And Simon is a part of that group. It's like saying Matthew the tax collector. Um, so Simon was a rough dude. He probably tatted up and everything everywhere. You know, he's like got a tat on his face. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I'm elaborating. <laughs> um, so he, um, he's a nationalist that uh, Daryl Bach says, among the apostles were a worker for the state, that's Matthew, a tax collector, and also one who fiercely opposed the state. So amazing, the unity the gospel brings. You have two men who would have absolutely despised one another. Matthew works for Rome, and Simon wants to kill Romans. <laughs> and yet, here they are together serving Christ, because this is how captivating Christ is. It is powerful enough to reach any person wherever they're at and change them. 
And it shows how the church of Christ is made up of many different people and backgrounds who have a closer unity than anyone else despite very big differences. Uh, Tradition says Simon preached the gospel in the north and even went to the British Isles. And he too was killed for his preaching. Judas, son of James, he's also known, he's got a few names. He's also known as Thaddeus in Mark 3.18. He's also known as Labius in Matthew 10.3. Uh, Thaddeus means like breast child or heart child, and it possibly indicates that he was the youngest in his family. Uh, Maybe some suggest that we would give him the nickname today, Mama's Boy. Uh, (laughs) And so, uh, but Mama's Boy is better than Judas. (laughs) So his name is Judas. That's like like having the name Adolf after World War II in Germany, right? Uh, Not a great name to have. It's been destroyed by one of your uh, partners here. And so he's always distinguished from Judas Iscariot. Uh, one, one writer, MacArthur says this, he says, most of the early tradition suggests that a few years after Pentecost, he took the gospel north to Odessa, a royal city in Mesopotamia in the region of Turkey today. There are numerous ancient accounts of how he healed the king of Odessa, a man named Abgar. In the fourth century, Eusebius' historian said the archives of Odessa, now destroyed, contained full records of Thaddeus' visit and the healing of Abgar. The traditional symbol, symbol uh, apostolic symbol of Judas, Alavius, Thaddeus is a club because tradition says that he was clubbed to death for his faith. Here's the lives of James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, Thaddeus, Labius. And it's the lesson that God rewards those who serve him. These men no doubt did many great things that would be fascinating to read those books, but we don't have any of them. They are rewarded nevertheless and memorialized. We, we read in Revelation 21, 14, that, uh, that the foundations are named for the 12 apostles. And then in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew 19, we read what Jesus says to them, to all the disciples in Matthew 28. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And so he's rewarded. Finally, Judas Iscariot, are you a false convert? Are you a false convert? Judas is the only one probably not from Galilee and he's listed last. We know him to be the treasurer of the group. He was that trusted. People did not think that Judas was a traitor because at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they're not all going like, oh yeah, Judas, none of his uh, miracles work. Uh, no one ever believes the gospel when he preaches. Um, he can't heal anyone. <laughs> he can't cast out demons. No, he, he legitimately cast out demons, did miracles. No one suspected Judas there were likely people who believed the gospel from hearing Judas preach. And they responded. But Judas was like a waiter who never tasted anything on the menu. He served it up to people, but never had a taste himself. And so he is a tragic figure. He is a tragic figure. He's the son of perdition. He knew he was closer to Jesus than anyone could possibly have been. And yet he rejected him. And sadly, he is a parable of many who walk away from Christ, having learned much about him. He is a warning to us that those who know much about Christ can reject him nevertheless and walk away. It's a, it's a warning to unconverted ministers, but it's a warning to unconverted anybody who is close to Christ. Dear Ralph Davis says, Judas Iscariot's place among the 12 is important for two reasons. It supports the case for the reliability of the New Testament story. One could imagine that the early church may have wished to expunge the shameful record of Judas, but there, is, there it stood. The early church didn't airbrush the portrait of Jesus' apostles, and Judas becomes a standing warning that closeness to Jesus and faithfulness to Jesus can easily coexist. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many miracles in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. He was mournful, but he killed himself. He had a worldly sorrow that led to death. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Do you know Christ? Not do you know about Christ, but do you really know him for yourself? These are the 12. These are the 12. Do you love Jesus? Do you bring others to Jesus? Will you suffer for Jesus? Are you humbled by Jesus? Do you long for Jesus? Do you recognize Jesus? Is Jesus worth it? 
Do you believe in Jesus? Are you a false, do you look to the reward or are you a false convert? These are ordinary, unlearned men. They are tre- uh, clay pots so that the treasure inside might be what is most significant, though the pot is ordinary. And that's how God works. He uses us, ordinary sinners, so that the message itself would be what's highlighted and known and not about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for using ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Lord, we know that our lives will not be remembered like the apostles, and yet that's not the point. Uh, The point is that you would be made known, that we would know you, that we would love you, we would enjoy you, and that we would make you known so that you would be central. These men are central in, in as far as they made you, they made much of you, and so may we do so as well. In Jesus' name, amen.